the root cause of mass formation was the lack of connectedness in the world, the loneliness, the disconnectedness. But that's the problem with mass formation, that it creates even more disconnection. And thus, it prepares society for a next mass formation. And that's what we are facing now. How did the COVID-19 grand narrative dominate so many of our lives for the past two years? How did this grand narrative lead to a herd mentality whereby people willingly sacrificed their freedoms in droves for a prolonged period of time in the grip of the COVID-19 panic? Now, in September 2021, we interviewed a Professor Matthias Desmet on the concept of mass formation, where we asked the question, why do so many people buy into the narrative? And we could not have predicted the reach that that particular conversation would have. That interview was viewed by well over 1 million people. It was shared over 10,000 times, and it was uh, influenced a whole swathe of activity around the concepts that Professor Matthias Desmus shared around the concept of mass formation. Luminaries such as Dr. Robert Malone shared our interview and uh, popularized the topic within his conversations with Joe Rogan, as did Dr. Peter McCullough. And that particular conversation at that time offered a glimpse into why what we had just witnessed in the course of the last two years was enabled to happen and why so few questioned these dominant narratives. Now, nearly 12 months on, we are delighted to be bringing Matthias back to the podcast to take a final look at what has gone before us. This interview is fresh off the back of Matthias's book launch, which is now available today, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, whereby Matthias explores the wider history of the concept of totalitarianism and how the psychology of masses, the mass formation uh, concept that he popularized during the pandemic in the context of COVID-19, took its grip over the course of the past two years and what can be done to alter the course of such uh, behavior in the future. Now, this is perhaps going to be following our initial interview, one of the most important conversations that we've had so far to date on the brand new Elevate podcast, where we take that elevated view upon what has happened over the past couple of years and what we can do to alter the trajectory. Now, understanding the psychology of human behavior, the mass uh, formation or madness of crowds, if you will, is such a critical component if we are to successfully navigate the challenges of our times and to ensure that this does not happen again. So it's a real privilege to be back with Professor Matthias Desmet for this particular interview on the day of his brand new book launch to ask some of the big questions that need to be asked around what led to, what conditions led to mass formation, what occurred over the years preceding COVID-19 that laid the foundations for such an event to, to occur. And in his book, Matthias explores the root causes of uh, the reliance upon science and how science becomes uh, dogmatic and ideological and political. And we explore the history, not only of um, totalitarianism and mass formation, but we look at the specific nuances of the way that we've lived our lives over the uh, recent decades 
that created the conditions for this very event to occur in the way that it has. But more importantly, during the course of this interview, not only do we explore these key concepts, we also look about how we move forward from here. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest once again, Professor Matthias Desmond. He's a professor of clinical psychology at Ghent University in Belgium, uh, fresh off the launch of his brand new book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, to explore these really important issues. Thank you for inviting me again, Dan. My pleasure. And there's no pressure. You know, we reached over a million people the last one. Let's see Let's see uh, how this conversation can give uh, a wider population an understanding of what's come before us. So I thought before we begin, it might just be useful to recap our initial conversation around mass formation. And for those who are not familiar with this term, A, what does it mean? Uh, and and how, how does it pertain to what we've seen within the pandemic? And how can it explain some of the group dynamics that we've seen over the past couple of years. So I wonder if you may uh, begin by giving your definition of mass formation and explaining, you know, what role it's played over the last couple of years. Mm, yeah. Well, mass formation, it simply, simply refers to the emergence of a mass or a crowd in a society. So it's a kind of group formation, a kind of group formation which has very specific uh, effects at the level of individual, psychological, and mental functioning. Uh, for instance, uh, when people are in the grip, when an individual is in the grip of a process of mass formation, it typically becomes radically blind for everything that goes against the narratives the group believes in. And that blindness takes very absurd proportions. Um, um, that's one thing, the blindness. The second thing is that people who are in the grip of a process of mass formation become radically willing to sacrifice everything that was important to them before the mass formation happens. So it seems as if people lose their uh, awareness of their own individual uh, egoistic interests completely. Um, and then a, a third very important characteristic is that people who are, who are, in, who are in a mass formation uh, become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. And as the mass formation continues, this intolerance becomes more and more profound. And in the end, they, they typically stigmatize. And if, it, if the mass formation goes to the, uh, uh, to, to, the, to the deepest level, they typically try to destroy everyone who doesn't go along with them and they typically do so as if it is an ethical duty. That's extremely characteristic. And they, they do so with people who are in a mass formation or willing to stigmatize, report, and ultimately commit cruelties to everyone, literally everyone, also the people whom they loved very much before the mass formation. Uh, so to give only one example, like a woman of Iran, told me two months ago, this conversation is available on the internet, how she was in Iran during the revolution in 1979 and how she witnessed with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the state and how this mother hung uh, the rope around the neck of her son um, uh, be before he was hung. And she claimed to be a heroine uh, for doing so. So that's typically one of the most dramatic effects of mass formation. And there's, there's this kind of group formation exists as long as mankind exists. 
So we have had all kinds of, ex of examples. Uh, for instance, the Crusades uh, and the witch hunts were typical examples, but also the French Revolution, the dancing plague in, um, in Strasbourg, uh, then the emergence of the large masses of the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany that are all typical examples of mass formation. And um, they, they, these, these mass formations happen when... They cannot happen at every moment. They happen when very specific conditions are met in a society. And the most crucial of these conditions is that there have to be many people who feel socially disconnected, who have to feel disconnected from nature and from their uh, fellow human beings. And that, that, that's what uh, the, the Frankfurter Schule and also Hannah Arendt called um, the social atomization. People feel atomized. They, they do not resonate anymore with their environment, not with their social environment and not with their natural environment. That's the core precondition for mass formation to emerge. From there on, once, pe once many people feel disconnected in a society, these people will typically start to experience a lack of meaning-making. That's logical because people typically find meaning uh, in observing the effects they have on their environment, on their social environment. If there is no social bond anymore, then this spontaneous experience of meaning also diminishes, deteriorates, and disappears in the end. And after that, once people feel disconnected uh, uh, and, and once, once they feel that their life is meaningless, they will typically be confronted with, at the affective level, at the emotional level, with so-called free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That means anxiety, frustration, and aggression that is without mental representation, or in other words, people will feel anxious, frustrated, and aggressive without knowing what they feel anxious, frustrated, and aggressive for. And this is an, this is an extremely aversive mental state because if you feel anxious and you don't know what you feel anxious for, you have no capability to control your anxiety. You feel really out of control. And in the same vein, if you feel frustrated and aggressive and you don't know why you feel frustrated and aggressive. You have no means. You have no, there, is, you have, there is no possibility to direct your aggression and frustration at something and to satisfy it. So and if people are in this state, something very typical might happen. If in this state, a narrative is distributed, it is disseminated through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety and a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, all this freely floating anxiety might suddenly connect to the object of anxiety and there might be a huge willingness to participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. And that can be uh, the crusades to fight the Muslims. That can be uh, the witch hunts to fight the witches. And it can also be uh, a QR code and lockdowns uh, to fight the anti-vaxxers and, uh, and the virus. So there's, or or the, 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 the concentration camps to fight the Jews. It's always the same. In every mass formation, there is like a strategy in which people participate to destroy an object of anxiety, something that captured all their free-floating anxiety. And that's the first step, a very important step, because in this way, people start to feel mentally in control. They start to have the feeling that they can control their anxiety and that they, and they also uh, can direct all their frustration and aggression um, to, uh, to something, which is also uh, at the affective level a step forward, let's say, or a symptomatic step forward. And then, in a second step, something even more important happens. Because many people 
participate in the strategy to fight the object of anxiety, people feel connected again. They start, it is as if a new social bond emerges. But, and that's crucial, this new social bond actually is not a social bond between individuals. It's always a, a, a social bond between the individual and the collective, meaning that in a mass or a crowd, people are not, a crowd or a mass is not a group that forms because individuals connect with each other. It's a group that is formed because every individual separately connects to the collective. And the solidarity in a mass is typically not a solidarity between individuals. It's a solidarity of every individual separately with the collective. And that explains, of course, why during the crisis, people were all talking about solidarity. They were full of solidarity. But at the same time, they accepted that if someone uh, got an accident on the street, they were no longer allowed to help that person. That was described like that on the website of the European Union, the Belgian government, the uh, Dutch government. Unless you, by accident, had uh, disposed, um, had um, uh, surgical gloves or surgical masks at your disposal, you were not allowed to help someone who got an accident on the street. In the same vein, if your parents were dying, if, if your mother or your father was dying, you were not allowed to visit them during their last hours. And that all in the name of solidarity with the elderly. So that shows us something very clear. The solidarity in a mass is a solidarity of every individual with a collective. All the psychological energy is sucked away from the social bonds between the individuals, and it's all invested in the, in the bond between the individual and the collective, meaning that, in the end, if a mass formation continues for a long time, the bonds between individuals disappear completely, and the people are typically willing to report people to the government, even the people whom they loved before, out of solidarity with the collective. And that's why every totalitarian state and totalitarianism is always based on mass formation, always. It's something completely different than a classical dictatorship. That's why in a totalitarian state, the population typically ends up in a paranoid atmosphere in which they all report each other through the collective. And that, 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 that strange mechanism of, of mass formation is extremely strong. It's extremely strong because it's uh, identical to a kind of hypnosis, a hypnosis in which also all the information, uh, all the attention is taken away from the environment and it's all focused on one small aspect of reality. And once this happened, the person is simply no longer aware of the rest of reality. You can take everything away of that person. He won't notice it. You can perform a surgical operation when he is under hypnosis. He won't notice that someone is cutting in his body. So that explains why this process is extremely powerful and why in the end also, as explained, it leads to the total destruction of all social bonds, something that we are witnessing now very clearly. We see that students and personnel at the university, for instance, are allowed to return to university to attend classes physically. And what do we see? Only 5% shows up in the same vein in the cultural sector. People are allowed to go back to movies, films, theaters, and so on, but they don't show up. That shows us, like, during the process of mass formation, the social bond was destroyed to the point that uh, it, and, and it doesn't recover immediately. To the contrary, because we see that 
the mass formation actually starts from the root cause of mass formation was the lack of connectedness in the world, the loneliness, the disconnectedness. But that's the problem with mass formation, that it creates even more disconnection. And thus, it prepares society for a next mass formation. And that's what we are facing now with narratives such as the monkeypox or the, uh, the war in Ukraine also to a certain extent. Um, well, okay, that's my short yeah. summary, Dan, of, uh, of, the pro of, the, of the phenomenon of mass formation. Yes, well, thank you for recapping that. And I think from the book, there was a, there was a great line that spoke about how we move from individuality and rationality to irrational collectivism. And I think that, that for me really simply surmises the kind of transition that happens so, so quickly that we, as you said, attach this background anxiety, this background frustration, all to this uh, external object in the name of a virus and then the mechanisms by which that virus would be attacked uh, using these kind of uh, methods. And I think it's important, you know, at this point now we're in 2022, is actually we have to take ourselves back to actually some of the things that we have endured. And, you know, here in the UK, you know, we've, we've, we've restored pretty much all of our freedoms and it's it's almost difficult to imagine now what we went through, you know, being allowed out of the house for one hour a day, the, the lines and arrows on the floor, the, you know, the uh, perpetual periods of lockdown, the inability to see our loved ones, friends, unable to attend funerals, see die, dying loved ones in the hospital. Um, you know, the, the, the vaccine campaign, which led to a form of vaccine extremism where people who were uh, uh, refusing to take the, 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 the injection were getting ostracized, dehumanized. You know, this, this began to really walk down a path of extremism to a point I think people became very afraid where this could go. And it almost reached a, a, a point of where people feared that people were going to come knocking on their door and, you know, removing people from their household. And I've heard rumors of things like that happening in other parts of the world. But I think when people think of totalitarianism, they instantly think about the the, the Nazi period, Stalin, and and these kind of perceived uh, they're, they're perceived as brutal dictators. But your your distinction is 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 an important one about how totalitarianism d differs. But I think it's important also to recognise the harms that have been caused by these policies. I'm not making a direct comparison here, of course, and this is important to recognise, but. The the, the 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 collapse of the economy, the the record hospital waiting list, the the erosion of the social fabric, the inability to 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 have those social bonds, the loss of education, the mental health crisis. You know, there is vast damage that has been caused by these policies. So it may be difficult for people to associate this damage with the actual process of mass formation and the, the subsequent policies. But these these consequences that have been minimised as a result of the grand narrative and these ide ideologies uh, have gone unrecognized in many ways because, as you state in the book, we saw the figures about the virus, the cases, the hospitalizations and deaths, but we only ever heard about the collateral harms in very abstract terms and, in, 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 uh, and at rare occasion. Could you explain a little bit about how that dominant ideology is so important in order to uphold something like mass formation? You know, how, how is that grand narrative so central to to the success of a uh, uh, mass formation? Yes. Well, um, you know, without a mass formation can never emerge without a suggestion. That's something that Le Bon said. 
like a, so sometimes sometimes it, it emerges spontaneously for for instance the dancing plague in an, in uh, Strasbourg somewhere in the 16th century emerged completely spontaneously but in that case it has a different structure it, it resembles more like a mass hysteria which is not the case here what we saw here was actually a process of mass formation not really a process of mass hysteria but um, well the narrative the, the, the narrative is crucial of course and it, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, as you said um, and on, on, on initially we are inclined to to, to believe that there is a huge difference that 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 uh, what happened in Nazi Germany and 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 in Russia and Russia was something completely different, but actually it wasn't. Huh? Of course, the kind of totalitarianism that emerges now is different from then. It was a fascist or a communist uh, totalitarianism in the first half of the 20th century. What we see now is the emergence of a technocratic totalitarianism. That means a technocratic totalitarianism um, that is led by a tech technological or, 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 or uh, academic experts um, and which relies very much on technological control. But in both cases, we, we do see, while there are radical differences, there are also radical similarities. We do see in both cases that in the first stage, what happens is that the population slowly becomes more and more fanatically convinced of a kind of pseudo-rational, pseudo-scientific narrative. That was the case in the Soviet Union as well. That was the case in Nazi Germany as well. In the Soviet Union, people became more and more in the grip of the idea uh, 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 of, of, uh, of historical materialism of Marx. Um, and uh, in Nazi Germany, people became more and more convinced uh, that uh, uh, a certain race was superior to all the others and that it should lead the world and that the entire society should be reshaped according to this racist ideology, but that's every time the beginning, the first step of totalitarianism. The slowly, people become convinced that the entire society should be rebuilt according to a scientific theory. That's the beginning. People often forget that. It's like a, a rationalist uh, um, a, a view on society which believes that a utopian society could be created if and the entire society was reshaped. Uh, if there happened something like a creative destruction, first, first we will destroy what exists now, and then we will reinstall a new kind of society uh, on the basis of a certain uh, pseudo-scientific theory. So that's the first step. That's the first step every time. And then slowly, as the masses become more and more convinced, become more fanatically convinced of this ideology, without noticing it, they start to... Uh, transgress all kinds of ethical principles and all kinds of ethical boundaries, and they typically start to become convinced that it is their ethical duty to uh, eliminate everyone who doesn't uh, buy into their narrative and who uh, doesn't obey, who doesn't go along with the narrative, just because they become convinced that these people don't show solidarity and that they are a threat to society because they will interfere uh, with the ideological plans that are necessary to reshape society and to create this new uh, um, paradise. <laughs> and that's, that's, it, it happens slowly, step after step, um, without people noticing it. it that's some, someone that, that's, that has been mentioned uh, several times by many people who have, who have been studying totalitarianism. It is not true that totalitarianism is created by a kind of monsters uh, who... Who uh, are malevolent? Who 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 
who consider themselves to be cruel. No, they are not at all. They are convinced that, that they, they, they will uh, save a, a society, that they will offer the solution to the seemingly unsolvable problems of society. That's the way in which totalitarianism starts. Yes, uh, and I think what you've articulated by those four background conditions, you know, the uh, lack of social bonds, the lack of meaning making, um, the uh, free floating anxiety, the kind of uh, social discontent, anger and frustration, it feels like they are conditions that are just waiting to be ignited. And uh, in the presence of some external event like the virus, it, it, it therefore... Um, manifesting what what, what 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 then follows through mass formation um i, I think what what's been fascinating about reading your book Mateus, is that in, in addition to these these constructs you've actually zoomed out further and looked at how our uh kind of rationalist uh mechanistic materialist view of the world post enlightenment is actually what's contributed to this trajectory where we've seen, seen the rise of totalitarianism in, in multiple forms. And I think your distinction you've just made around technocratic totalitarianism is an important one, particularly uh, in the context of this conversation and what we've seen with the pandemic. Could you explain a little bit about really where the first part of your book it, it explains the kind of uh, enlightenment phase and, and our, our, our kind of pursuit of this mechanistic science, which in many ways has obviously brought a greater degree of comfort to our life, but actually it's also created these conditions whereby mass formation can occur. Could you, could you walk us through the connection between? Yes. Yes, definitely. Well, it's, it's indeed. Um, while I have been discussing the phenomenon of mass formation on several podcasts, it seemed impossible to me to describe the, the broader process of the broader cultural cultural historical process that led to the intensification to, to the fact that uh, mass formation became more and more became stronger and stronger throughout the last three centuries because that's something extremely important. Many scholars uh, studying the process of mass formation have remarked that mass formation has existed uh, as long as mankind exists. As I, as I just uh, as I said before, but that also, but that it became stronger and stronger throughout the last few hundred years. That's something very remarkable, and to my knowledge, nobody has explained or has tried to explain why it became stronger and stronger throughout the last few centuries. And that's an extremely important question because, of course, it's that phenomenon, the fact that mass formation becomes. Uh, increasing, increasingly strong throughout the last few hundreds of years. It's exactly that what explains why in the beginning of the 21st century, this new kind of state emerged, namely the totalitarian state. Um, the, and as soon as we understand, as soon as we start to understand why the phenomenon of mass formation became stronger and stronger, we also start to understand what we can do about it or in what direction we should look for a solution. And so, indeed, in my book, I, I, uh, I uh, um, believe that the root cause of uh, mass formation or the, increasingly, the increasing power of mass formation throughout the last centuries is the emergence of the so-called mechanistic view on man and the world. That means a view on man and the world which believes that the universe, the world, uh, everything around us, is like a kind of a set of 
elementary particles, molecules and atoms, that interact with each other in a mechanistic way, and that all can be described in a perfectly rational way. So that's uh, the, uh, the kind of ideology that emerged or that became stronger and stronger, that became the dominant ideology, ideology throughout the last few centuries. And what's crucial in this ideology is that it believes that everything around us can be described in a rational way, can be manipulated in a rational way, and that rational understanding should be the guiding principle uh, of society and of human life in general. So that's something that is extremely important about that uh, mechanistic uh, ideology. I will tell immediately that the strange thing is that while everybody believes that this view on man in the world is actually the scientific view on man in the world, most major scientists all left that ideology behind. They all uh, declared it invalid after a while. For instance, for instance, because they all noticed that if you persevere and if you continue to try to understand in a rational way a certain phenomena, such as the behavior of elementary particles, you always come to the conclusion that the core of the phenomenon can never be understood rationally. That's what, for instance, Niels Bohr said when it, with his, uh, uh, in his famous quote, when it comes to atoms, language can only be used as poetry. So Niels Bohr won the Nobel Prize uh, uh, for his uh, uh, work in physics, his uh, description of the behavior of uh, atoms and elementary particles, and he concluded that uh, uh, the behavior of elementary particles is radically irrational, something that was, um, or in the same vein, uh, systems theory concluded that almost all phenomena in nature are radically irrational. And in a paradoxical way, systems theory showed this in a strictly rational way. They showed in a strictly rational way that the core and the essence of all complex dynamical phenomena is uh, irrational. And literally, that uh, complex phenomena behave in the same way as irrational numbers in mathematics behave. So it's, you can take it literally. Uh, uh, most phenomena in nature behave in an irrational way. So that's the strange thing. While we all think that, that, that uh, the, the materialist mechanist view on man in the world is a scientific view on man in the world, most great scientists uh, declared it invalid or uh, this, this, uh, this take on man in the world. So, but now, it's exactly uh, the emergence of this mechanist, materialist, rationalist view on man in the world that led to this social disconnection of people. In several ways, in several ways, it's clear that the mechanist view on man in the world and the uh, industrialization of the world, the use of technology that was associated to this view on man in the world, that disconnected people from their natural and social environment. I give several examples in my book. I could give, uh, I will give a few here if, 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 that's, uh, if that's okay, Dan. Yes, like, yeah, for, for instance, um, even the simple invention of something like a watch, a wristwatch, or changed or deteriorated the connection of the human being with its natural environment. Before there were watches, people were forced to keep in touch 
with natural cycles of the moon, the stars, and so on, uh, just to be able to uh, orientate in time to make appointments and so on. And that disappeared when the watch was introduced. And you could say that that's only a minor detail. And in some respects, it may be yes, but at the psychological level, it's a huge revolution, a huge revolution. If you could, if you could project um, the stream of consciousness, the stream of mental representations that goes through the human mind constantly, if you could project that stream of representations on a screen, on the wall, and watch it in the same way as you watch a movie, then you would see that the stream of consciousness uh, contained much less mental representations of nature and of the environment as soon as people started to use a watch uh, uh, to know uh, what time it is. And in the same way, this holds uh, even much more, of course, for the invention of radio, television, uh, steam engines, also for the use of global positioning systems, navigation systems in cars, and also, for instance, for the digitalization of conversations. That's also that's one, that's my favorite example. I've been studying uh, real conversations between people. That means uh, conversations uh, when people are physically uh, present, when people physically meet. Uh, for 15 years uh, in my research, uh, with my research group at Ghent University, and that research showed me how extremely subtle and, su and sublime uh, real conversations are. For instance, in a real conversation, people react to one another in less than 0.2 seconds. That means five times faster than the reaction time in traffic. I'll give only one example. For instance, if one person stops speaking in a real conversation, then the other one will typically start speaking in less than 0.2 seconds. And that even happens when the first person stops speaking in the middle of a sentence. So that shows us that the reason why people can react, react so fastly in a real conversation is not because there is like a rational, it's not because they can rationally predict when the other person will stop speaking. No, it's just because people in a real conversation are physically connected in an extremely subtle way. The bodies of two people who talk with each other in a real conversa conversation constantly resonate. The tension in the muscles constantly, uh, uh, the, for the, the tension in the, mus in, the, in the muscles of someone who listens to someone else constantly copies the tension in the muscles of the person who is speaking uh, without being visible uh, from... Uh, uh, it's, it's like a slight increase in the same... Muscle, muscle tensions in the two persons, and also the uh, the neurological system re systems resonate with each other. That's what became clear from the research of the so in the so-called mirror neurons. But that explains so it's this constant symbiosis, physical symbiosis, this constant physical resonance that creates like a certain bond between the two people that connects people in a at a very deep level with each other, and that also satisfies one of the most important longings of the human being, like the, the desire to connect physically to other people. And that's something that is diminished, or at least uh, that is much less strong in a digital conversation. In a, digi in a digital conversation, there is always a certain delay in the transmission of the signal. We only see a part of, of, the, of, the, uh, part of the body of the, other, of the other person and so on. And that explains in, in one way or another. So why digital conversations? If you 
um, uh, have digital conversations for a long time, for instance, for six to eight hours uh, 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 on a row, that you feel exhausted because in one way or another. It's, it, it is as if your body is exhausted. And the reason is, of course, that your body constantly tries to connect without you knowing it to the body of the other, but that it constantly fails and in the end feels exhausted. That's what the Petriglieri said on Twitter one time. He said, digital conversations are so exhausting because they constantly put you in the presence of the absence of the other. <laughs> you constantly try to connect, you try to connect, but you fail to connect to a certain extent. So that, 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 that's one that, can, that allows us to understand why throughout the last few centuries, um, the level of disconnectedness, more and more people felt lonely and in the UK and in the rest of Western Europe, this problem was, uh, was really, it was recognized. For instance, Theresa May appointed a minister of loneliness in the UK because she, rec because she recognized how many people felt disconnected. And um, it's that, that's exactly why, so that's, that's the root cause of, of the phenomenon of mass formation. When people feel disconnected, when people feel atomized, fragmentized, they suddenly, and nobody knows exactly why, show the tendency to merge and connect and form a mass or a crowd. It is as if there is an overcorrection. It is as if people switched from a extreme individualism and disconnectedness to the maximal connectedness and the extreme collectivism that exists in a mass. And that's a drama, of course, because... Uh, life flourishes or the human being flourishes if it is somewhere in the middle, if there is a certain level of individualism and a certain level of collectivism. The two are necessary. but And the two other extremes are extremely um, destructive. And um, that's, but that's that many, I, I describe many of these things in the, in the first part of my book, showing how the emergence of the mechanist fuel men in the world uh, in a few steps uh, led uh, to mass formation and to totalitarianism and how in the end if we do not succeed in overcoming the mechanist view on man in the world we will be confronted time and time again with mass formation and we will end up in more and more extreme totalitarian states in which people and the government in which there is like a kind of diabolic pact uh, Hannah Arendt said between the masses and the leaders and in which they both uh, go in the direction of a more and more pseudo-rationally and pseudo-scientifically organized society, which relies more and more on technological control to contain all the emerging aggression and uh, frustration uh, and anxiety in the population. And this typically, in the end, this typically leads to the radical destruction of all humanity in a society, unavoidably, because what is humanity? A human being feels human at every moment when it can make a choice that is really its own choice, that is not forced by uh, 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 someone else. And that space typically disappears in a society uh, that is in the grip of mass formation and totalitarianism because that's so typical for mass formation. The masses do not permit of any individuality deviating from the group norm. 
That's typically the problem of mass formation and that's typically the problem of a totalitarian state uh, where the state system itself represents this drive to control everything that exists also in the masses. So we should not be naive. It's not a problem of the elite alone. It's a problem of an entire society, the problem of a diabolic pact, unconscious pact between the masses and their leaders. Uh, and that diabolic pact will continue to exist as long as we are in the grip of this mechanist view on man, on man in the world. Uh, Matthias, I, I mean, this for me has been one of the most insightful pieces of the puzzle because we can accept the four conditions of mass formation and understand how they would contribute to this type of uh, phenomena. But until we understand what's led to the background anxiety, the social isolation, the social discontent, the free-floating anxiety, then we're we're at the mercy of, of the problem. Whereas it almost felt like reading the first part of your book that that veil had been lifted. I and mean, even that distinction, thank you for sharing the example of the clock, because I... I don't remember the last time in my life, maybe when I was at school, I actually imagined what life would be like without the time, you know, because we, we forget that people once lived by, you know, the point of the day that the Jew, Jew lifted or that the, uh, the, 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 the moon appeared or the sun reached its highest point. And this, you know, we'd have had to take a, an entirely different approach to organizing this interview if we didn't have time. Um, but, but, but then the kind of, the industrialization, the, the creation of jobs that the, the, the brought the manufacturer further and further away from the consumer. Every person involved in that process become more and more disconnected from the end, uh, end production. The increase in administrative jobs, you, you know, the, the, all the references you make within the book around how people's job satisfaction has declined, uh, the lack of meaning and purpose as a result. Uh, the digital technology and how it's actually connected us virtually, but disconnected us physically. All of these signs become very clear that the the, uh, the, the post enlightenment industrialization has created these conditions whereby mass formation can arise. Um, and and to me, this was this was where the lights came on because it suddenly realized. I, I made this realization, and that we discussed this prior to our interview commencing, is that. It feels like we're within uh, the kind of end stage of a certain epoch, post, or unless it, and if we're not, I've said it before on the podcast. I, I almost could write Brave New World Part Two based upon the trajectory we're on, because as you've outlined, unless there's a, an alteration or correction, then this this type of materialist mechanistic thinking, in in in, in in particular with reference to the increase in digitalization of our world, can only increase and create further opportunities for events like this to occur. And I think the other paradox that you outlined in the book, which was really interesting, was, you know, in this period of enlightenment where we kind of moved, the idea was that moving away from, uh, at the time, an increasingly dogmatic uh, uh, religious culture, the idea was this would free mankind to, to liberate oneself from, from some of these more oppressive doctrines that had emerged, yet it's resulted in more rules and regulation. And some of the examples in your book really brought that home to me about how, how now we, we actually perceivably live in a more free society, but we really, really, really don't. You know, there's, there's more rules and regulations in the world than there, there ever was within Christian texts or other religious texts, other, other ideologies 
Would you comment on on that trajectory? Because that's that for me is that was also an insightful piece. How how we now live under these increasingly rules and regulations, and again, the last two years has really shown how that's that's no. incre- increasing. Yes. Well, I think that principles and laws were progressively replaced by pseudo rational rules and regu- and and, uh, and and regulations. I think. So and that's 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 a problem that we fell prey throughout the last centuries to the idea that rational understanding should be the guiding force in our society. Instead, rational understanding, instead of ethical principles, instead of the principles of humanity, and that's something that we uh, can observe very clearly, of course, observe very clearly during the corona crisis. All the elementary principles of democratic living together were thrown overboard. They were brushed under the carpet, and they all uh, were replaced by um, by by all kinds of ever changing rules and and and, and regulations uh, that were formulated by experts. So, and that's that's I think the major problem in our one of one of the most elementary problems. And 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 that as well, that was not typical or that was not uh, limited to the Corona crisis. That exactly the same happens happened every time a totalitarian state emerged. If you read, for instance, Solzhenitsyn here. I have his book here besides me, uh, Solzhenitsyn, uh, the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, in chapter two, I believe, uh, the, the title of chapter two is There is no law anymore. There is no law anymore. There are no principles anymore. In a totalitarian state, the guiding framework is always this pseudoscientific theory the historical materialism or the race theories in Germany. And uh, and here, maybe it's more like a technocratic transhumanist uh, ideology that is uh, that is at work here in, in our society now. But in any case, it's, it's the same. It means that from now on, uh, people will be told what to do depending on this everyday changing analysis on the basis of this rationalist ideology and there will no principles or no laws anymore that can uh, uh, that you can use to protect or that can limit the impact of the government on your private life. So, if you look, that tendency started somewhere in the 16th century, as soon as the mechanist view on man and the world emerged, immediately you had certain ideologists or intellectuals who claimed that society should no longer be led on the basis of principles, that it should be led by rational experts who decided every day what the best, uh, uh, how life should be, uh, should happen or how humans should behave that day. That's exactly, that's exactly, and that's only logical. As soon as you really believe, believe that the universe is like a kind of material machine, um, uh, that can be understood entirely in a rationalist way, as soon as you accept this starting point or this ideology, it's only logical to conclude that it is the person who understands this material machine, who possesses the, natu- the rational, uh, rational knowledge about the machine that should be in charge and that should tell the people what they should do. 
Why would you uh, live up to ethical principles? Why would you follow uh, 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 broad ethical principles um, if someone has a perfect rational understanding of how the machine of the universe will behave? And, and it's clear that in such a in a society based on this rationalist view on man and the world, it's the rational expert that should be in charge. And that's a that shows time and time again uh, that it, that the that it has very dramatic consequences because, of course, rational understanding, that's exactly what science concluded, the real science. Rational understanding is always limited. There is not one kind of mathematics. There is not one science of space. There is an endless series of possible uh, uh, rational understandings of everything around us. So if we pick one of these rational explanations for the world, then we limit our view on man and the world to a very, a very, a very we, we narrow it down uh, until we see only a very small part of reality. Um, so rational understanding is always limited. That's what science showed us. And uh, if we try to uh, organize a society on the basis of rational understanding, we will end up in an enormous chaos and in the abuse of power of those who believe, who, who can determine what rationality is and what the rational understanding of the world is, the only way to organize a society in a fruitful way is to have respect, to try to stay in touch with uh, the eternal principles of humanity, which nobody can really articulate in a definitive way. We have to reinvent them time and time again. We can feel them, but we can never capture them in logical or rational terms, but they are just crucial. If we, I think that's, if we are talking about uh, a post-enlightenment society, a new society, which um, uh, follows the society of the, uh, the tradition of the enlightenment, which, which uh, comes after the uh, tradition of enlightenment, then I believe that this new society will be based on ethical principles, but not in a dogmatic way, not in the way in which institutionalized religion uh, stuck to principles in a non-dogmatic way um, and based on a different kind of knowing, not so much on a rational knowledge, but based on a much more resonating knowledge. That's something that was very well uh, described by René Tom, one of the most famous mathematicians of the 20th century and one of the founders of systems theory. He said, this part of reality that can be understood in a rational way is very limited. And the rest of reality, he said, we can only, we can only know by empathically resonating with it. And it's that kind of knowledge which is crucial. It's that kind of knowledge which will also bring us in touch again with these eternal principles of humanity, with this resonating kind of knowledge. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that we have to follow rationality as far as possible. I'm not against rational understanding. I think we all have to try to understand the world as much as possible in a rational way. But if we do so, if we, if we follow rationality, we will inevitably arrive at a point where we can clearly see that rationality arrived at its border, that behind that point, um, uh, there is no option whatsoever 
to rationally understand what happens there. That's what all major scientists concluded. And it is at this point, we have to be able to make the switch to a different kind of knowing. And personally, in my own life, I, uh, I experienced this very, in a very, very well, I think. It took me until I was about 35 years old before I started to understand that uh, rational understanding was limited and is limited. Um, and it was as if at that moment, my mind really opened up, <laughs> almost literally. If you think logically, you connect the one logical idea to the other. And you, you establish like a, a closed logical chain, which gives you the illusion that you understand the world around you, but which maybe also isolates you from the world around you. And as soon as you can accept that your rational understanding and your logical understanding will always be limited and that it will never allow you to understand the core and the essence of life around you, at that moment, it is as if all the logical ideas slowly start to open and as if almost literally the strings inside yourself, inside your body and yourself, your own mind can start to resonate with the eternal music of the things around you. And that's something I think, I believe that it's this kind of knowledge um, of which we can, of which we are allowed to expect a lot. That's something that, it, it, it's hard to, as, as, um, as uh, René Tom said, um, this kind of knowledge, of resonating knowledge, is never definitive. We always have to get in touch again with the things uh, the things outside of us and um, establish a firmer and firmer and deeper and deeper connection, a resonating connection with, uh, with all the phenomena around us. Uh, but during this process, I believe that we will slowly feel again, get in touch again with uh, all kinds of timeless or eternal principles, which are the real instruments to organize human uh, living together. And which also frees us, I think, from uh, the fear of death and dying. I, I noticed that very well in my life. And I think that's only logical. As soon as you can resonate with this eternal vibration outside of you, you spontaneously will start to have the experience that that is not the end of everything. It's not the end of our life. Uh, that we uh, will forever continue to participate in something eternal. And uh, uh, that we can remain calm and quiet under the idea that one day we inevitably will stop to cease to exist in this world. Uh, so, uh, something like that, I believe, I described it in the last part of my book in much more detail and much more elaborately. But I believe that indeed, in, in the end, um, uh, uh, the mechanist view on man in the world is the problem and that there is a way to overcome it uh, and uh, that that is the way uh, we will have to go yeah well this this to me Matthias is the most powerful part of the conversation and it does it does lead to the, the latter part of your book because um, it, I've been grappling with this problem um, in, in many similar ways that you have um, I understood mass formation and I could see how that that was playing out 
but my, I, I, I wanted to understand what, what led to mass formation and this mechanistic materialism, material redu- materialist reductionism to me is, is you know, my team and I have been talking about this. this. This to us feels like a very strong clue about why we're experiencing what we're experiencing. But also if you look at that point of enlightenment, to me it was almost a, dis- you know, a, a divorce between uh, rationality, uh, science and uh, religion, spirituality, in many ways, you could also look at that as a disconnect between the right, you know, we, we can argue about whether there is actually a left and a right brain, but the kind of logic and empathy, uh, this this linear thinking of logic versus lateral thinking of the, the other aspect of the brain. And we've, we've gone down this, as you mentioned, logical, sequential kind of pathway to, to understanding the world through rationality, this incrementalism, whereas actually there is... The, it feels we've almost reached the, the the edge of that thinking in the sense that we are now witnessing the absence of that unknown that is beyond rationality in the way that you've described. And, and it's led me to want to understand how that point of enlightenment arose, because I think what, what likely happened was the institutionalization of, of religion, which took it down a more dogmatic approach, which deviated perhaps from its more ancient wisdom and practice because the, the the notion of building society on principles morals ethics and practices to me makes makes a lot more sense than this scientific technocratic rules-based uh approach which is leading to what we're, we're now witnessing so so it feels to me now we're heading towards an we're, we're the, the humanities at a crossroads that we either continue down this technocratic totalitarianism uh, totalitarian path or we see a renaissance of ancient wisdom, uh, a kind of pursuit of something more uh, spiritual in nature. Um, but, but as you said, around balancing individualism and collectivism, to me, it's it, that finding that equanimity between rational thinking and empathy, uh, compassion, these these more uh, human factors and 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 even spirituality. I know you comment on spirit and matter in the in the book. It feels to me we need a greater balance, but I I don't know whether we'll go further out of balance to reach a tipping point yet. It, it feels to me like that's the trajectory that we're on that we perhaps need to really reach the edges before the the scales are tilted. But I do feel like we have an opportunity now to to reevaluate how we live um in the wake of covid-19 and that for me is where the promise of a of of a of a different world view emerges but it really does feel like we're at the precipice of requiring a new philosophy from the modern age a new economic theory for the modern age a new political it feels like everything needs to be reevaluated not necessarily radically overhauled but 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 some yeah. sort of uh, reevaluation, reappraisal, uh, a rebalancing, if you will, of, of the world that we live in. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to something like spirituality, I know you touched upon it in the book. What's what's your view of how? What role does say spirituality or, or ancient wisdom play in providing a counterforce to this type of technocratic uh, materialist world? Well, I, th- I think that the wisdom. Ancient wisdom was the same as, as contemporary wisdom. It's always the same, I think, but we, but we have to reinvent it time and time again. And I think that uh, I'm writing a new book, actually, at the moment, in which I really 
uh, talk about what I think will be crucial uh, if we um, in trying to find the principles for a new human living together. And I think that what is will be crucial is something very concrete. We will have to practice what I call the art of good speech. It's speech that makes a human being a human being. And there are different ways to speak. What we experience now in our society, for instance, is that rhetorics seems to have replaced uh, what the ancient Greeks and the ancient Jewish and uh, Japanese cultures called truth speech. There is something as an opposition between true speech and rhetorics. And rhetorics, you use speech in an instrumental way. You, you use words to manipulate the other, to convince the other of something you actually don't believe in yourselves, to try to push him in a certain direction in which you want him to go. If you look at the way in which the domain of public relations, for instance, uh, developed throughout the last 150 years, then you see that then it makes clear that somewhere in society we started to accept that speech and words were used as a kind of manipulation. Sometimes the people people who were involved in public relations believed uh, that they did it with the best intentions, and some of them really did it with the best intentions. intentions but still, even if you speak in a deceitful and in a manipulative way with the best intentions, you there is like a kind of perversion of the practice of speech in a society. And this new society... Uh, or in a, in a, I think that a reappreciation and a, a new respect for uh, what the ancient Greeks and, and, and different other cultures already called true speech, that will be crucial because it's through speech that we connect. It's through speech that we can start to resonate, to resonate with each other. It's through speech that we can grasp something in nature uh, and, and, and resonate with it. It is, I think, that the practice of speech is um, um, represents the core of the solution to the problems we are we are we are uh, facing now, uh, and uh, I'm sure that society will become convinced that we will need even more manipulation, that we will need even more nudging, that we will need even more propaganda, that we will need even more fact checkers who try to silence all the dissonant voices and so on, and the more they they will go in that direction the more they will create a chaos, the more destruction they will create, the more psychological problems they will create, and uh, the more it will become clear that we need something completely different, that we need a society not based on propaganda, public relations, or nudging, or uh, big data, or no matter what. No, we need a society in which people start to talk in an as sincere as way as possible, not because they are convinced that they are the only ones who know the facts, but just because they feel or they, they live up to a, a ethical duty to express the words that, or, uh, that uh, emerge in yourself and that seem to be sincere words. It's already mentioned in the Talmud. If people do not articulate the words that seem sincere to themselves, then they slowly start to lose their soul. And also the opposite holds true. If you try to articulate the words that you think are sincere and honest, then you will feel that slowly 
you become stronger and stronger. And that the strength is not the strength of the ego, it's something else. It's something, it's a strength because you vibrate and you resonate with something deeply human uh, in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in everything around you. And it's that. You, it's if we, if we try to speak in such a way, being fully aware of the fact that also our opinion uh, is not absolute, that it's relative. But if we try to speak in such a way, we will become stronger and stronger as a human being, not as an ego, but as a human being. And we will establish firmer and firmer social bonds between individuals. And slowly, there will be a new network of people, of human beings that emerges and that slowly becomes stronger than all the, the world of appearances that is created now throughout all kinds of use of uh, propaganda and manipulation tools. Uh, again, no matter how well intended they might be uh, uh, in many respects, but which are, in the end, radically unethical and dehumanizing. That's the point. Uh, if you look at, again, I will refer again to, to Alexander Solzhenitsyn here, the guy who, who received the Nobel Prize for his book on, uh, on, on his on his. A long stay in the concentration camps. Uh, he described at a certain moment, and I refer to to this uh, uh, to this episode in uh, in my book. I think in the last chapter, he describes how in the concentration camps, most people, most prisoners, uh, started to behave in a beast-like manner. They crushed each other each other's skulls, literally, just to steal the food. Of their of their fellow inmates and uh, and to to take their clothes uh, during the night, and Solzhenitsyn uh, describes how a small minority of the prisoners went in exactly the opposite direction. Direction instead of becoming uh, beastly, they started to become more and more aware of ethical principles, and they started to be to 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 be to they started to uh, try to to live up as much as possible. To, uh, to the rules of humanity. And he said, like, in some of them, uh, he observed a very strange phenomenon. He observed how these people, uh, and he refers to one prisoner in particular, um, Ivanovich Grigoriev, if I'm not mistaken, was his name. Uh, this guy really, he refused to, uh, to, uh, to steal food. He refused to steal clothes. He refused to do anything that he felt was that was not that was a uh, in contrast with his ethical principles if the guards if the if the guards commanded him to do something that he considered unethical he just refused no matter what the punishment was and he Solzhenitsyn describes how he noticed that this guy who was rather weakly when he uh, and and sickly when he entered the, the the concentration camps where most prisoners died in a period of a few weeks to a few months how this guy became stronger and stronger and stronger also physically and how, in the end, he survived the gulags for more than 15 years, uh, um, uh, together with uh, Solzhenitsyn himself, actually. And that, Solzhenitsyn says, if you think in a mechanist, materialist way, you can never understand something like that. But I've seen it with my own eyes, he said, in, 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 in several prisoners. And, he, and he, 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 he remarked that that shows us the immense potential and the power of... Uh, the importance of ethical principles for a human being. I think that it's that what is the future of humanity. A renewed 
appraisal and a renewed respect, a renewed understanding of the importance of ethical principles, both for our mind and for our body, and even more for society and for living together with people. I think that's uh, uh, the path that we will have to walk in the future. We won't know, we, we cannot know uh, what will happen in the, in, the, in the next years. I think um, uh, it, might, it might be a very chaotic time. I think it might be a very dark and difficult time. Uh, but it's, it makes no sense, I think, to try to predict what will happen exactly. But it makes sense to just focus and invest all our energy as a human being and trying to stick to principles of humanity in a world that is dehumanizing uh, and in a world that becomes uh, more and more uh, yeah, inhumane, yes. Matthias, this is exactly the conversation we need to be having right now, and I, I'm with you on this. And the, the story you've just told really illustrates that actually it's a minority it begins with a minority who are willing to do things differently and to stand resolute in the face of uh, whatever challenges they're facing, whatever's going on around them and holding true to those principles. Uh, I, I know in our previous interview, we spoke about a similar concept that uh, how, how, how different people see the world un, under, under mass formation and how there's always a group who actively stand against what they're seeing. Uh, and to me, that group now ha have the opportunity to, to do as you've described and find a new way to relate to one another, find a new way to uphold a, a different set of human principles for a, for a different society, irrespective of what continues. Because I think you're right, we can't predict the future, but the, it feels like the train has left the station when it comes to the kind of technocratic trajectory. And I think we will see an increasing set of problems but that can be counterbalanced by the types of approaches that you outlined. And, uh, you know, I've, I've only just got to the end of this book, but I'm already looking forward to your next one. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I want to conclude by thanking you for, for, for sharing uh, really a, a fantastic summary of the, the core sections of this book, but also hinting at the, the future. And I, I, I hold that true similarly. And I am excited about finding those new ways of relating in conversation. Uh, to me, it almost feels like, returning to the kind of Greek agora, if you will, the public space where people gather in person and explore mm. ideas together respectfully and harmoniously. They can disagree over a cup of coffee, uh, mm. but, but in doing so, exploring different ways of thinking and relating. And, and I truly believe we, 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 we require a new philosophy for a modern world that, 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 that takes stock of the fact that we now live in an industrialized or post-industrialized um, digital world and that it's going to take certain thinkers to really establish how we can navigate that. Because everything you've said today is absolutely right. Even physical conversations like this, it's hard to have even eye contact on a digital conversation. You know, my camera's here, you're there, I'm looking at you. So actually that ability to relate in a digital space is compromised. And I think, A, we need to find a way to improve our ability to relate online because that's not going to change. Uh, but we need to also get back to physical interactions where we can actually restore those bonds and and have those deeper connections and conversations so i personally uh, take a great deal of excitement about the situation that we're in here i, I do think we're at the you know the, the enlightenment period is coming to a close and that something is going to replace it and there are people out there right now actively seeking to imagine what that next phase of humanity will look like including yourself and myself as well and that fills me with great excitement 
but but I want to say with regards to your new book, and again, I've had the real privilege to our audience of having a review copy of this one, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. It's coming out on the 16th of uh, June. It's uh, And it, 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 there are occasionally books that come along that, that try to make sense of a key moment in history uh, and become a guide to the lives that we live. And and to me, this is this is one of them. This, this book, uh, to me, like I said, it was like the veil lifted because... Fortunately, due to my interaction with Matthias, and for those of you who've seen the interview that we previously recorded, we, we had this understanding of mass formation and the role that's played. But this book goes deeper and it helps you understand the context, the background, but also points a signpost to where we need to go. And hopefully today's conversation has given you a flavor of that. Uh, so I uh, encourage all of you to grab a copy of this book once it becomes available on the 16th of June. Uh, if you're on our mailing list at, uh, at the Elevate podcast, then you'll certainly get the links from us about where to get that. Uh, if you're not on the mailing list, then I encourage you to go to danastongregory.com forward slash podcast. Uh, we'll certainly be keeping you up to date with uh, how you can get hold of the book. Uh, we may also hold a um, uh, a book club within our Elevate network where we can explore the book together. Uh, so I encourage you to join us at weareelevate.org. Uh, it's something we're exploring, bringing people together to unpack uh, different books that can actually help us understand what's happening in the world. So if you're not a member of the Elevate network, please join us there. Uh, but I want to say thank you once more to our guest today, Professor Matthias Desmond, uh, who's done some incredible work over the last couple of years to help us really understand uh, what's been going on. But it's f really, really great to hear, uh, like myself and others uh, who are seeking to understand what's going on in the world, more importantly, how we can move forward from this. And I, I look forward to seeing how your work evolves uh, beyond uh, this, this latest piece of work, Matthias. And I want to thank you for your time again here on the Elevate podcast today. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for inviting me again. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for joining us for this insightful conversation today with Professor Matthias Desmet. It's, to me, been one of the most important conversations we've had following our initial exploration on the Pandemic podcast when we asked the question, why are so many people buying into the narrative? Within that conversation, we learned about mass formation, but today we've seen a lot of the underlying factors that have led to the situation that we found ourselves in over the last couple of years, but also, more importantly, some hints about what we can do differently moving forward. Now, I'd be very interested in your reflections on today's conversation, so please do uh, enter your reflections in the comments. But if you'd like to uh, expand on this and join the conversation about the topics that we've covered today, then I invite you to join our private online network, the Elevate Network. You can visit us at weareelevate.org, where we'll continue the conversation about this episode. Uh, it's a place where we explore and examine the key themes and issues facing our world right now, but more importantly, start to explore the different individual and societal transformation opportunities available to us in order to, to create a better world. So once again, it's my pleasure to have been with you here on the Elevate podcast. Very interested in your thoughts. Please do hit the share button and help us reach more people with this important conversation. You can also check out our show on the uh, major audio platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, etc., uh, all the major podcast platforms are uh, are available to you. Uh, and if you'd like to be kept up to date with future interviews like this one, then take a moment of your time to head over to danastongregory.com forward slash podcast, where you'll get the latest links to all of our forthcoming conversations like this. My name is Dan Aston Gregory. Thanks again. This is the Elevate podcast, and I'll see you on our very next episode of the show. Mm -hmm.